Bruce Nolan was a news reporter in Buffalo, New York, and he covered homespun stories and local businesses and charity events at Niagara Falls and things like that. He had this beautiful girlfriend who loved him dearly. He had a nice home, but he wasn't very happy. He wanted more than anything to be a real journalist. What he wanted was to be at that anchor desk in the evening delivering the news to his hometown. And when that job was given to someone else, Bruce lost his mind in rage and disappointment. And then he lost his job because he lost his mind on live television. It is the worst day of my life, he says. And he blames God for all of his misfortune. He takes a drive to further vent his frustration and all the time he is shaking his fist at God and cursing heaven. He stops long enough only to throw his girlfriend's rosary into a lake. That's how angry he is. But the next morning after a fitful night of sleep, things have changed. Bruce gets that promotion after all, but not to the anchor desk, higher than that, all the way to the top. Bruce gets promoted to become God. I'm speaking, of course, of Bruce Almighty, the 2003 movie starring Jim Carrey as Bruce, Jennifer Aniston as his girlfriend Grace, and Morgan Freeman as God. Morgan Freeman as God, of course. A generation ago, it was... Uh, who played God in the movie? George Burns. We get Morgan Freeman. Fantastic. Well, Bruce Almighty is given this promotion because he thinks that God is doing a lousy job as God. And God says, okay, it's all yours, buddy. And at first, he has all these new powers, and he loves it. He parts the soup in his bowl like parting the Red Sea. He walks across Lake Erie. He calls his girl's skirts to fly up for his own amusement. He creates new and fancy clothes for himself to wear. He takes revenge on a few bullies. His first day of being God ends with him at the top of a tall skyscraper, creating a lightning storm around him and saying these words, I am Bruce Almighty, my will be done. And he goes on using his powers to make his life better, getting everything that he wants with little thought about anything else. But soon, Bruce Almighty here develops a problem. He starts hearing voices inside his head. A little chatter here and there at first, but followed ultimately by this irrepressible roaring. It's, it's so loud, he is overwhelmed by it all. And God shows up again, Morgan Freeman that is, to tell Bruce... That is the sound of people praying. And poor Bruce doesn't know what to do with all of this. He can't hear and respond to everyone. He's overwhelmed. So he converts all of this prayer, next slide please, to email. Where he can download them to a computer and reply to people. But it proves so much he finally responds yes to all and grants every person praying what they ask for. And it almost breaks the world. Chaos ensues. And again, God shows up, Morgan Freeman, to see what the problem is. And Bruce says this, There were so many prayers 
I just gave them all what they wanted. And God answers, yeah. But since when does anybody have a clue about what they really want? That scene at the computer there where he's answering all those emails and that one line response is worth the price of admission. Since when does anybody have a clue about what they really want? We think we know what we want, don't we? We ask God for it with all of our might, but it might not be anything close to what we need. And it might not be anything close to what we would ask for a week later, a month later, a year later, or a decade later. Tony Campolo often shares a story from his own life. When he was eight years old, eight years old, he went to an afternoon matinee with his father. And there was a cowboy movie on, Hopalong Cassidy. And he became obsessed with Hopalong Cassidy. And he came home and he dressed like a cowboy and he talked like a cowboy and he walked like a cowboy. I'm going to be a cowboy. And he says, wouldn't it have been strange 10 years later when I say to my father, okay, Dad, I need to talk about college and what's next. If Dad had said, college? You told me when you were eight years old you wanted to be a cowboy, and I've bought a 1,000 acres in Texas with 100 cows on there, and that's where you're going. And Campolo concludes, I'm really glad my father didn't give me what I asked for. Here we have this text today, though, about prayer about asking God for what we want, what we need. And it certainly appears that we are to keep on keeping on when it comes to the request that we make. Bang away at it. You'll get what you want. Maybe God is just busy. Maybe God's inbox is simply jammed, full of prayers and emails. He'll say yes eventually if you stay with it, if you keep sending the message, if you have enough faith, at least... That's what the Rolex-wearing, brow-lifted televangelists tell me early in the morning or late at night. Show a little faith. Be persistent. And, of course, the best sign of that faith is a big fat check to the address you see on the screen. Pardon me if I'm a little suspect of that. A man has this late-night company come crashing in on him. That's the story. I was grilling hamburgers outside on the grill the other night at 11 o'clock in the rain. Why? Because company came crashing in on us, not from out of town, just Braden's friends. The house suddenly filled with hungry teenage boys. My youngest son, the youngest of many sons, does not apparently travel alone. He is a pack animal. <laughs> and probably compensating for his brother's absence. The house fills up. I had burgers in the fridge. It wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't that large of an inconvenience. In Jesus' day, it would have been a little bit more of a challenge. People only cooked what they needed for the day. Usually they cooked all they had for that day, daily bread. And even if they had excess, there was no way to preserve the leftovers. No refrigeration, no microwave, no press and seal plastic baggies. It's late at night, a traveler has arrived, and this man has nothing to offer the traveler, his friend. And there would have been no greater insult, probably, in that culture than to not show hospitality to a traveler. Not only do you not have uh, preservation of any kind, you don't have hotels, you don't have late-night restaurants, there are no waffle houses, there are no drive throughs there are no rest stops. And so this man, 
not wanting to show offense, what does he do to try to solve this problem? He goes to his neighbor next door and knocks on the door. Do you remember? Were you ever sent as a child to actually borrow stuff from your neighbor? Is that still done? Probably not. Might get shot. (laughs) Or suspected or end up on somebody's little camera. We used to go next door all the time, borrow an egg, cup of sugar. You always paid it back somehow. Well, that's what's going on here. He doesn't need an egg or sugar. He needs three little loaves of bread. Enough for one person who's traveled all day to have something in their stomach so they can sleep that night. So he goes up and he makes this request. And what is the response? Go away. Don't bother me. The door is locked for the night. My family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But we do see why he goes to this neighbor. His fam- he's got a family. So surely, if there's a guy on the street that had leftovers, that made a big meal, it's going to be this guy. And I just need a few, few loaves. Well, a little more context. In a small first century home of the peasant class, there would have been a single interior room. And in the corner of that room, there would have been a baked clay oven. And that oven prepared the meals each day. And at night, as the fire burned down, it provided the heat. Some in this room may have a long enough memory to remember when the stove and the heater were the same contraption in your house. Anybody? Thank you very much. Well, that's what's going on. And at night... The whole family lay down on this series of pallets in front of the heater. Mom, Dad, Aunt Kay, Uncle Tommy, Granny, Pop, the kids. If it was a cold night, the chickens, the mule, the dog. I know it's kind of... Everybody is laying around this fire inside safe and warm. So when this guy says, the door is locked and I'm, I'm, I'm in the bed, he's like, if I have to get up, it took an hour to get everybody in. It took an hour to get everybody settled down. If I, I can't get up, go away. What does this guy do? Woke you up, didn't you? A couple of you were sleeping in the back. He keeps knocking. He's shameless. He's persistent. He won't go away. Now finally, the man gets up. I've had it. I'm not going to get any sleep anyway. This guy's not going to leave. He gets up. He steps on Junior's face. He trips over his wife's leg. He collapses into a pile. His knee lands in Uncle Tommy's groin. He kicks Granny. The mule kicks. It's all gone to chaos now. He gets up. He go gets the three little loaves, shoves them out the door, slams the door, go away. The neighbor is so happy to have that. It's an intentional, funny story. And when you laughed earlier, when Gary read it, about the shamelessness of the knocking, you got it. That's exactly the picture that Jesus wants to portray. And Jesus makes it very clear that the reason the man gets what he asked for is not because of the goodness of the neighbor. Not because of the kindness of the neighbor. Not because the neighbor was looking for faith. I'm giving you this so you will go away. Is there a parent in the world that doesn't understand that? Just give it to them so they will shut up. Have you ever said that? Of course you have. Never, not you. There's a years ago, 50s, was it in the 50s, Joseph McCarthy's Red Scare? 
He's going around accusing everybody of being a communist, including all the commanders in the military. And it was, a, um, it was an attorney, Joseph Welch, who finally put it all to bed when he said, Sir, have you no decency? That's sort of what's going on here. Sir, would you, have you no decency? Could you quit not? No, I have no decency. I'm not leaving here till I get it. Well, I guess that's what Jesus wants us to do. Like getting in line a week before the tickets go on sale. We'll just camp out right here because one day God will crack the door and we'll go running in. Or maybe we can just keep shoving our message under the door 947 times. Maybe we'll send him an email. Till then, we just keep throwing rocks at his window. One day we'll get his attention. One day we'll, we'll wear God down. One day we'll complete this negotiation and God will finally give in and give us what we need. I don't think Jesus is saying that at all. Certainly there's value in persistence. Jesus says, keep, keep knocking, keep asking. But Jesus isn't telling this story to compare. He is telling this story to contrast. The neighbor did what he did, not out of goodness or compassion, but because he was haggled into it. It wasn't friendship that got him out of bed. It was the knocking. And God isn't like that, Jesus is saying. Keep asking, keep knocking, but you don't have to badger or convince God of your needs because God already knows what you need as a loving father knows what his children need. But if you listen to our prayer lives sometime, we're just badgering away, aren't we? Begging, begging, begging. But something happens. The more you keep asking and keep knocking over time, what you're asking and knocking for seems to change, doesn't it? Jesus' point is, <laughs> chill out, relax, rest, trust. You're a father, and even the worst species in, in humanity loves their children. And a father or a mother will give their child what they need. Not always what they want, but what they need. And that child does not have to badger that parent for a loaf of bread. That child does not have to badger that parent to be fed because the parent knows that's what this child needs. And so what Jesus is saying is, you've got a loving Father in heaven. He knows what you need before you even ask it. Trust Him with all that you have. So the point of this text is not you will get what you want if you keep asking. The point of the text is God is good and God is gracious and God is compassionate and He knows what you need long before you ever ask. You don't negotiate with God. You don't have to convince God of your neediness. He knows we are made of dust. He created us. You might recognize this guy on the screen, Albert Einstein. He had one of, if not the greatest, scientific minds in human history. He also had some very interesting religious and spiritual beliefs, often very hard to categorize. But he did state more than once that the concept of God was too much for the limitations of human reasoning. And coming from him, that's quite a statement. Still, he was not an atheist. 
to the point that he wrote this. I think the most important decision facing humanity is this, is the universe a friendly place? All people must answer that for themselves. And he wrote this 80 years ago. 80 years ago, and I want you to hear how it speaks to us still today. If we decide that the universe is an unfriendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, our natural resources to achieve safety and power by creating bigger walls and bigger weapons to destroy all that which we feel is unfriendly. If we decide that the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly, and that God is essentially playing dice with the universe, then we are simply the victims of the random toss of the dice, and our lives have no real purpose or meaning. But if we decide that the universe is a friendly place, then we will use all of our resources for better understanding. Because God does not play dice with his universe. (laughs) Complex though his beliefs were, Einstein believed in the goodness of all that was created and the goodness of what we religious people call God. He looked out on the vast expanse of everything made and he said something so beautiful, something so orderly, something so magnificent has got to be a neighborly, friendly place in which to exist because we've been granted this grace to live in this kind of neighborhood. And so we decide. Is this a friendly place in which we live? Is God good or is He not? Do you know why you call God, God? In English? The root of the word is a Germanic word from ancient history. Gut, it means good. Every time you say God, you are saying good. Every time. If you call God by name, you sign off your prayers, dear God, you are saying, you are declaring your faithful belief that God is good. That's the Einsteinian point. Jesus makes in Luke 11. It's a mystery, yes. We don't always get what we ask for. Sometimes it seems like heaven isn't listening. Our lives are full of need and limitation and unanswered prayers. We live in the dark more than we live in the light, but still we press on, betting our lives, betting our entire existence on the goodness of God. Because if God is not good, we have no hope or meaning in this world. It's that simple. Believing that we belong to God's grace like a child belongs to a loving parent, trusting His direction, surrendering to the reality in which we live. You know, there's a, there's a call and response thing in African American churches that I've always loved. The preacher will say, God is good. And the people answered, you know, all the time. God is good. 
And then he'll say, all the time, God is good. All the time. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I know y'all don't go to black church. I watch you clap at times, and I know that we could stand a little more diversity on Sunday mornings, you know. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. That's good theology. That'll hold you in the road. That'll give you some strength when you don't have the answers. That'll provide a little backbone when life is hard. Because never confuse life and God. Life is hard. Life is unjust. Life is an uphill climb. But God is good. That's all the time. All the time? So how then should we pray? Well, I think the attitude is more important than the words we use. If we really believe that God is good, and you really believe that God is on your side, and you really believe that God welcomes and loves you as a father loves his children or as a mother loves her children, then you have to know you trust that it's all in God's hands anyway. My wife and I were talking about this very thing recently. She'll love this old Hasidic story, old Jewish story. Others will too. I think it takes the pressure off of having to say the right words all the, all the time. It's a story of a poor farmer who loaded up his wagon and he took his produce to town, to the market. And he spent all day selling his produce. The day went longer than he anticipated. He's on his way home. He's not going to make it home before dark. So he pulls his wagon off the road and camps for the night in the woods. And as he makes camp, he realizes he doesn't have his prayer book with him. Maybe he left it at home that morning. Maybe he left it at the market. Maybe it fell off the wagon. But he is so distressed because he would never go to bed at night without saying his prayers. So this is what he prayed. Dear Lord, I have done such a foolish thing. I have lost my prayer book. And my memory is so bad that I can't even recite a single prayer from this book. So Lord, I'm going to say the alphabet real slow. And let you take the letters and make the words that need to be said. And the Lord turns to his angels in heaven and says, Of all the prayers I have heard on this day, this is the finest. Because here is a man who trusts me with his whole heart. 